Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 91. In today's episode, I interview barefoot extraordinaire, Dr. Emily Splickle. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode to learn how Dr. Emily assesses footwear and her recommendations, what stem cells really have in store for us, as well as a greater understanding of athletic pubalgia. Alrighty, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. On the line today, I have Dr. Emily Splickle. Dr. Emily, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. 10 sentences? Oh, my goodness. Approximately, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just used three of them. Um, my health journey. Uh, I was a competitive gymnast growing up, so athletics and sports movement was part of my lifestyle since I was age six. Um, started in personal training in 2001 after I left forensic science. So I thought I was going to be a CSI uh, detective pathologist and then shifted back into movement. I uh, then went into podiatry school in 2004 to um, get some deeper understanding of human movement, human anatomy, function. I went and got my master's. Uh, after completing podiatry school. So that was in 2009, I went and got my master's in human movement and then started the Evidence-Based Fitness Academy in 2012, which is where we offer our Barefoot Training Specialist certification. Um, still have been doing, been active, am now an uh, aerialist. <laughs> so if this medicine movement doesn't work out, I might join the circus, meaning circus. <laughs> I tell people that, and I'm like, not the clown, like not clown circus, but like Cirque du Soleil circus. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, that makes Different sense. Um, and recently, in the past couple of weeks, joined CrossFit, so <laughs> doing right. some Olympic lifting. Um, so trying to balance my body weight with throwing heavy weights around. Um, and then just launched a small nerve training surface mat called Naboso Technology, which we just sent out the patent application, just open sales. So that's super exciting and uh, have lectured about movement science, barefoot science in over 30 countries and uh, dedicate my medical career to helping people understand movement, longevity, and how our feet relate to that. I don't know if that's 10 sentences. No, that, that works well because I, th I think that gives like a, a succinct overview kind of, okay, where, where have you been? What, what's everything gone through? And because one of the things that really intrigues me is that the Evidence-Based Fitness Academy, uh, and, and I'm going to kind of bring this full circle here, that being a podiatrist and barefoot, like barefoot and podiatry are often – uh, not, not seen as, uh, really two things that go together a lot of times. And that really intrigues me. Like, how did you really come, uh, to blend those two together? Because a lot of the podiatrists that I work with, it's, that's often a, uh, a, a very, uh, 
thing that they're going to stay away from, if you will. Yeah, um, I'm probably the black sheep in the podiatry community, um, like to a higher level than most people realize. I've, I've actually received emails. <laughs> from, I believe that. From, Absolutely. From people in the board saying like, you are an embarrassment to podiatry. You're like shaking things up and going against what we stand for. And you know, it's like, um, but whatever, that's, that's just my personality. Um, <laughs> so I think I, I'm very much a person that I'm not just going to regurgitate information. I think every industry, um, Every uh, generation needs people who are going to question things versus, you know, in podiatry where we're taught and I was learned or taught as a student into a resident and you just hear what people senior to you say and how they answer patient questions and they would constantly be like, well, you need supportive shoes, New Balance, not knocking New Balance, but you know, they would be like, you need to get New Balance. New Balance is the shoes that you need to be in. And I would hear this over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And then you come to realize that every podiatrist is recommending New Balance because New Balance pays <laughs> to be, you know, accredited by the American po- Podiatric Medical Association. So it's it, it ends up being like, okay, everything has this business side. But I'm like, what if I, what if that person doesn't need New Balance shoes? What if we just look at this in an unbiased way and actually appreciate human function and human movement and the uniqueness that everybody's foot has, you know, not every foot needs to be in orthotics and supportive shoes. I take that stand probably because of being active from a very early age and then going into fitness and dance. And I was always barefoot, gymnasts are barefoot. Um, and appreciating movement from my own exploration and then bringing that as I started looking at the science of things and teaching classes and always teaching classes barefoot, like group fitness barefoot, and just seeing how people move and then bringing that into the clinical setting. So it's it's challenging the norm of what's just spoon-fed to you as a profession and then looking at the science, thinking for yourself, thinking outside the box, and actually asking why. Um, so that's that's kind of how I got into it. And then all of this happened at the same time as the book Born to Run. <laughs> so Great timing, yeah. I, yeah, it happened to be <laughs> at the right, place at the right time. Um, but that's really what, when you look at um, people who challenge things, it, it kind of is a little bit, you know, what do they call that, Circum, circumstance or... Uh, when you're in that place at the right time, um, that I was doing this exploration as the Born to Run book came out, as I was really starting to lecture on the fitness conference platform. And then I was hearing people talking about barefoot running and barefoot and feet. And they were just saying what they thought. It was completely anecdotal. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, I'm the only person among these people who are lecturing, who has the podiatry degree and have studied foot anatomy at a deeper level and foot pathology at a deeper level than anyone else, like this really is my chance to, you know, set some guidelines, set some evidence-based standards and progressions and exercises and assessments. And then that kind of developed into uh, what is now EBFA and our certifications. So what does, what is the really, like you said, the EBFA, what, what has that really transformed into? Because I mean, we're talking about the barefoot here, but I'm sure it's much more than that. Like you said, because you're talking about just all, all, all the movements that go along with that, but now you're even blending in for yourself, some of the heavier movements, uh, but then even the aerialist aspect. So how does that all, uh, how has that come together in developing that for you? Uh, so the, the certifications have actually changed quite a bit. When I first launched it in 2012, the Barefoot Training Specialist Certification, we had one level, and I focused very much on isolated foot anatomy, you know, isolated science of the proprioceptors of the feet, and um, just kind of like a, a bird's eye view of that part of the body. And then in my exploration of just my own movement, me being an aerialist, me being in fitness, and then 
connecting with other colleagues who have, you know, amazing programs and the integration of, of human function and human movement, the fascial system, um, pelvic floor. I started tying in all of my foot specific education and integrating it deeper with the body and then looking at the research and the fascial lines and how that ties in deeper. And now the barefoot training specialist certification and my education and the way that I treat my patients is very, very integrated. And I, the, the foundation of it is what we call foot to core sequencing. So I try to get all of my patients and professionals to understand how the bottom of the foot or the foot is the gateway to our neuromuscular coordination uh, during dynamic movement and proximal stability. And the timing of pelvic floor, deep hip, lumbopelvic hip activation with foot contact. Um, and that's really much more the evolution of where my certification is now. And that allows us to then be applicable to so many professions and so many uh, professionals because everybody moves dynamically whether you're a soccer player or you're a mom who's carrying her baby like you have to be able to interact with the ground and with gravity and the foundation of that is in my belief foot to core sequencing and the proprioceptive activation of the foot so in there because this is something I I love doing. Like I just love rolling my feet out every single day. I mean, this is something like I've looked at, I've heard other people do, but the way that I feel like that just opens me up, uh, just going up the chain I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. And if you could expand a little bit more on some of those fascial planes and even uh, the, the core sequencing, the pelvic floor, because I think that is something that is actually so profound and so overlooked. Like people don't have that, uh, understanding of the connection between the two. Right. Yeah. So the, and I, I agree with you that I've been actually releasing my feet for 2006 for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. So when I would first, I met, uh, Yamana, I don't know if you've heard of Yamana body rolling and she's no, these I'm not sure. okay. So, um, I went to a fitness conference and she had these little foot wakers, these little domes that you released your feet on. And I was like, Oh, I'm a podiatrist. There's a workshop on feet. This is before anything of me lecturing and stuff like that. And I kind of adopted that from an early perspective, probably because I was wearing high heels a lot. <laughs> Which is, oh. <laughs> my early, my early twenties, I was wearing high heels all the time, all over Manhattan, which was so bad. Um, but I didn't know better. I didn't know what I know now. Um, so I would release my feet and foot health from an early age was, you know, built in. And I would feel that connection like, oh, wow, it would release all the way into my back. So I would start appreciating almost like what you're saying. Um, so those fascial lines, I'd say the easiest one is the superficial back line where you're like, OK, your calves attached to your plantar fascia, which extends into your digits. So if you're releasing the bottom of your foot, you're ultimately releasing your calf, which releases the hamstring, which goes into rectus spinae, blah, 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 all the way up. That one you get. The one that I'm much more fascinated in is how our deep front line, which connects your foot to your pelvic floor, that's the foundation uh, fascia line that we activate in my certification. Not many people know that your posture tibialis, which is part of your deep front line and is the key stabilizer of the foot, actually myofascially connects to your pronus longus. So then you would want to ask yourself, okay, the pronus longus is what fascia lines? Well, you have the lateral line and you have the spiral line. So you have a deep stabilization fascia line all the way up into your pelvic floor, which is connecting to your lateral line which connects into your glutes and your your tfl so the mobilizers of your hip and then you have the deep front line pelvic floor connecting to your spiral line which goes into your obliques so any anything that i look at as far as human movement i try to tie back to deep foot intrinsics and pelvic floor just because of how those fascial lines cross in the bottom of the foot um and that fascial crossing you see that in other areas of the body, but the fact that we're standing on it and your contact point with the ground are those fascia lines 
to me, that's that's key. That has to be integrated into every person's rehab or fitness or performance program because of how how it's at your base and it crosses. So I, I think understanding deep front line, lateral line, spiral line integration is key. And if you can optimize those three fascia lines, I truly think that you're then optimizing your uh, human movement uh, pathways or potential, if you want to call it that. And I think, I, at least for me, the takeaway from that, like I, I understand, I have a basic understanding at least of all of the fascial lines. Now, when when I'm looking at that, then I'm, I'm thinking this to myself and probably for others is, hey, at least just roll your feet out every day. Like that's gonna go a long ways. But I, I have maybe a little deeper question off of this because uh, I work with some pelvic floor physical therapists, but you're also, you mentioned like the CrossFit, uh, starting with that too. And in the CrossFit community, uh, it's not uncommon, especially among females where, okay, if they're jumping rope or if they're box jumping or like hitting like deep squats, anything like that for them to talk about peeing themselves even a little bit with this. Like, I guess, could even, or I don't know if you've noticed this, like could pelvic floor therapy even begin with some of just this uh, self like fascial releasing across the foot, just working on some of uh, the, the posterior tibialis the, the, and, and, and up those lines then as well? Yes. However, I w- and what you're making are all, all um, points that I think need to be addressed and there's a lot of opportunity for health and fitness professionals to understand that is that's not normal. <laughs> Thank <laughs> like, you. Yes. That's, I, that's I, a big I, one right there. First yeah. of all. <laughs> so, knowing that the anatomy is a little bit different. Okay. Our urethra is shorter than males, but the strategy for creating uh, pelvic tension or abdominal tension or pressure still it's being switched and let's say you're doing a squat and that's where some female crossfitters will pee themselves um is releasing the foot key however on top of releasing the foot you want to start activating what's called short foot and short foot is the exercise that activates your deep front line and when i tell people or teach people to activate their foot do short foot is you don't want to do it in isolation. So you don't want your foot to be strong over here and then your core to be strong over there. If your foot to core are not talking to each other, who cares? Like, then you might as well not have a strong feet and a strong core because they have to work together. That's the way that the human body works. So the way that I teach people to do short foot is as they're contracting short foot simultaneously and coordinated, they need to be activating the posterior pelvic floor or lifting their perineum. So, and it's that coordination that's going to help them create proper deep core tension or whatnot. So if you're coming out of a squat, you're going to have the proper sequencing of pelvic floor TVA. And and that's going to be with your foot. So, you know, that would be the appropriateness. And you could totally do this after releasing your feet. I, I definitely start with releasing the feet and then doing short foot and coordinating short foot with the pelvic floor, with the TBA, and learning how to sequence and co-activate the tensioning system of the core uh, for some of these CrossFit exercises. Now that I've taken CrossFit, I get to see, and not every box is the same. So I know if there's some people who are listening who do CrossFit, and I'm not knocking CrossFit because I'm doing it, um, the foundation principles on how to activate and sequence are so not taught <laughs> at all. And we're talking um, about CrossFit, but this can be any functional movement programs yeah, out there. Absolutely. Like There are so many group fitness classes and stuff where it can be, like you said, it's across the board. They're doing CrossFit, but they just aren't paying the fees to have the name and stuff too. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So um, when I teach, I teach a, a workout called Bear for Crunch. And it's, Bear is a barefoot balance class, but it's really a body tension class. And that's one of the biggest principles that I pulled from gymnastics and now into body weight, aerial um, circus stuff is the art of body tension and 
proper body tension that sequences out of your deep core or, um, you know, spider webs out of that deep core that a lot of people strategize body tension the wrong way. And in my class, I teach a lot of Halloween and creating tension and, and showing people that when they add on a level of stress, if they lose that pelvic floor TVA sequencing, they switch to the way that their body stabilizes and they recruit more global muscles. So they've just lost um, that deeper stability. And you, you can see it because someone's stomach will push out. They'll, they'll go from a um, bracing, the lifting strategy to more of pushing the stomach out, which yeah, is... pelvis drops anteriorly, exactly. all of the above. Right, yep. absolutely. Yep. And, and them identifying that and the coach should be able to see that and as soon as it happens, like stop the, stop, go back, right? Like you, your firing pattern was wrong. Go back to this strategy. And then once they have it, okay, now we can add stress to the body because you understand, you know, X, Y, or Z. And it, it, it's until you understand that concept, it's very easy to fall out of that. I will fall out of it because it's, it, it takes a lot. It's work. <laughs> when I teach it, Sometimes people will be like, Gee, like I feel like I just gave birth, like because <laughs> it's it's a lot of work and coordination and thought and mental. Like, can I just like use my global mobilizers and push this weight? Well, you know that's how you get hurt. And you know I was uh, not blessed, but oddly blessed. Of I had um, I don't know if you've ever heard of athletic pubalgia or a sports hernia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I had that injury. This is in my wonderful journey. I had that due to, um, you know, going global, high intensity. I was doing a lot of cycling and cycling just feeds, you know, deep hip pelvic imbalances. And um, I went from cycling to doing some crazy ab things on the bar. And I tore my rectus abdominis fascia that and eventually had to require surgery and the the journey of getting to that diagnosis and then getting through my rehab post-surgical because I kept switching into global versus getting my deep pelvic floor coordination had me go into this journey that there's actually still a lot of misconception around proper sequencing patterns in the stability. And so I, I integrated a lot of this foot to core coordination and pelvic floor TBA coordination just in my own recovery because I was being rehabbed completely uh, inappropriately that it, it took me literally nine months post-surgical after having the fascia uh, surgically repaired to be able to jog across the street so I don't get hit by a bus. <laughs> like, because my my adductors kept going into spasm like my pelvic floor was completely deactivated and so now part of what my uh i don't know my purpose in my education is bringing an awareness to this injury but also to proper firing patterns so that other people don't have to go through certain injuries that are misunderstood or you know simple the the peeing thing someone who's doing crossfit and peeing like that is greatly setting themselves up for getting an adductor strain, athletic pubalgia, sports hernia, things like that. Um, because all of them are built on the same imbalance or misfiring pattern. And, and you start to see that. And the same thing with labral tears in the hip and things like that. Thank you for that. Uh, there was a whole lot in there. I hope everybody kind of, th this might be one of those where you go back and listen to that like five times because, no, 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 but I mean that in a good way because this is an undercovered topic. Like not a lot of people are talking about this or even just how to begin to address it. It's just thought of as, well, okay, get a surgery, fix it, or that's, you're just going to have to deal with it. But no, these are just faulty movement patterns that they're not going to heal overnight. Because this has been going on. I mean, if this is happening to you, if it's been happening for a year, for 10 years, for 30, 40, 50 years, like it's not going to just be a quick fix. 
because there are going to be all of these movement patterns that have to be reset. Like these muscles are going to have to learn to just be turning on again because all the global ones have just been shutting down all these stabilizers. So there really is a lot that's going to uh, take place in order to uh, get the body to function optimally again. Yeah, no. And I, I think understanding the role of surgery is huge. I do surgery. I, I think that there's uh, important for health and movement specialists to appreciate when surgery is actually appropriate. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that also if you have the surgery, that's not the be all end all. You know, if someone has a torn labrum and they have a surgical repair of their labrum, that's great. However, if you don't fix the underlying imbalance that led to the shift of the femoral head that led to the labral tear, <laughs> that injury can happen again, obviously. We, right. we understand. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is you have to appreciate both sides of the uh, human health in a sense, or movement science, musculoskeletal science, um, is the role of Western, you know, more like, and even steroid injections, I will, they have their role. A lot of people have this very negative association with steroid injections, but sometimes there is that role for that injection so that you can continue to go down the rest of that uh, recovery of correcting the movement imbalance. Absolutely. And I mean, these things can have their place. It's just... I, I think the most important thing you said there is what's then underlying. Like if that's not being fixed, it's going to happen again and again and again until something is done to address what is still causing it ultimately. Yeah, no, absolutely. I did a, um, a webinar for uh, EBFA and I have all of our webinars that we do. We do them once a month and they're free and roughly 45 minutes free education, which is great. Yes. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> like who's going to complain about that? Uh, we have those all on our YouTube channel and I've done two so far on athletic pubelgia and adductor strains just because it is such a misunderstood area. And anytime I, I go to a conference and I speak about these things, there's so many people in the audience, like professionals, um, such as you and I, who will come up to me after and be like, oh my God, I've had this adductor groin pain for, you know, five years and it, my hip clicks when I bring my leg down into extension and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, nobody knows what it is or they brush it off or they're like, ah, just foam roll. Or like they, you know, it's, and that's why I think understanding this deeper pelvic local stabilization sequencing is so important. So if anyone's listening <laughs> and has a client or athlete or themselves who's had adductor pain or groin pain or, you know, things like that, you can definitely check out the uh, my YouTube channel and check out that webinar because it's I'm such an advocate on professionals understanding what a sports hernia is and adductor strains and the muscle movement pattern imbalances that lead to it. Because the surgeons don't know. They don't they just fix it and, you know, think it'll be better, but it's not. And I think that brings up another thing that I'm curious your thoughts on like adductor strength in general, uh people just have very, very weak adductors. I think it's more a frontal plane thing in general, but mm -hmm. that's something I just commonly see. And then you'll see these strains of sometimes it's tough to tell whether it's adduct or whether it's hamstring because I mean, they're still blending together there and you see this all the time and it's these chronic strains, but these muscles are weak. They're already trying to make up for, uh, the lack of stabilization through the pelvic floor and inner unit in general, but now they're just asked to do all of this work and they just can't handle it. Yeah. The, the big thing with lumbo pelvic hip muscles is they have to be on that stable base. And if, you're, if your pelvis and your lumbopelvic hip complex, skeletal complex, isn't stable, these global muscles have to then stabilize and mobilize. And then that's where you get some serious tendinitis because they're, they're just being pulled at their ends. And it's, it's very difficult to get them to calm down. And educating patients or clients so that they understand that as well. Um, one of my biggest things after I get 
a tendon or a connective tissue to calm down is the return to stress that I put my patients through. I it is like slow because I've had so many so many patients who will go from a a injury where they're in a cam walker for four weeks and then just get out of the cam walker and walk all over Manhattan and then, <laughs> then get a stress fracture. <laughs> and I'm like, you have to, you have to know how to gradually do this. And a lot of our, our connective tissue, unfortunately is very, it's very sensitive. It's, you gotta like tease it and then back off and then tease it and then back off because stress ultimately makes your body stronger but that, that's controlled stress. If you push it just a little bit too fast or you don't allow that proper recovery period, then it's extremely difficult to get that tissue to calm down again. It gets very angry. Um, and that, that's something that uh, I'm a huge advocate as well. And we go into that in our Barefoot RX program is just understanding the fascial connective tissue system and how it responds to stress, which very similar to what you're saying is you know, part of controlling that stress is making sure that your foundation of stabilizers is activating before your mobilizers. So I want to kind of shift gears. Well, in a sense with a question then I'm curious, what are some of your, like, what's your favorite footwear for people to use? Because I don't think it's practical for everybody to just go walk around barefoot in today's society. But I think there are also a lot of uh, barefoot slash minimalist or zero drop shoes that are also pretty garbage out there. Uh, but I'm just curious to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I will, if someone is looking for minimal shoes, I will, I don't, you know, try to push patients to one brand. I'm not biased in any right. way. Um, but having them understand the different features and a lot of them are when, well, when we're saying minimal, minimal meaning, you know, they don't, they don't have the shank through it. So you can kind of roll them and twist mm -hmm. them and things like that. Every one, every shoe has a couple different features. And I try to get the client or the patient to understand the most appropriate minimal shoe based on their foot type. The foot type, the stress they're going to put their foot on and their injury history. So certain minimal shoes have different torsion than other ones. So if anyone is listening and they have their shoe handy and you can wring the shoe out like a rag, so you're not folding it in half like a sandwich, is what, which is what the um, old Nike ads were. That's not what you're looking at. You want to try to create torsion through it. So you're wringing it out like a rag. Every minimal shoe has a different degree of torsion. I look much more at the torsion because our foot is really a rotational structure. Even though we move sagittally and we think of our foot as a lever that moves us sagittally, it goes through torsion and rotations. So optimal foot function, really you want to have a shoe that's going to allow torsion and rotation through your midfoot and your rear foot. So the more torsion a shoe has, the more freedom of movement you'll have in your foot. However, if you cannot control that torsion and those rotations of the foot, you will want to choose a minimal shoe that has less torsion to it. Um, the Nike Free line has less torsion than Vivo Barefoot or Vibram. So sometimes I will recommend to patients to have more of um, the Nike Free line just because they have a little bit of trouble controlling um, navicular drop and subtalar joint eversion and things like that. Um, when it comes to other features is there is different levels of the heel toe drop where just calling a shoe minimal doesn't necessarily mean that it has zero drop. Something can have minimal support, but still have a transitional heel toe drop, which means it's roughly around four to eight millimeters. That's good for the client or athlete who has had the history of plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis, because it's just going to take a little bit of tension off of that fascial system. It's not going to put you into a full traditional drop that a lot of people will see as a negative, but it's still going to just give you a little bit of stability, which is good. Um, if you have someone with a very high arched foot, that foot by design 
has a short Achilles tendon. So short Achilles tendon is needs to have a slight drop to take tension off of it. Um, so understanding those parameters as well helps me to guide shoes based on foot type. So I personally wear Vibrams um, because I want, I, I like my digits to be free and I like as minimal, minimal shoe. I want the maximum torsion in the shoe as possible. And this is even when I'm walking around, you know, the city on the concrete, like pounding the pavement, I will still wear Vibrams. I have some that have a little bit more sole to them when I'm walking on the concrete. And then when I train, I wear almost like a, a studio shoe Vibram for when I train. And I think that's a great explanation of it because I, I mean, there's the whole Vibram like the, where they got sued a couple years ago and it was mm-hmm. this going back and forth, but people need to understand like, okay, if you've been wearing shoes for your entire life and now all of a sudden you just completely drop that and go to something, especially as minimal as the Vibrams, like the, the uh, five fingers, well, uh-huh. that's going to be a big stress to your body. And we talked about that graded stress. That's like going from the cam boot just to barefoot, like overnight. I mean, all of these things need to happen gradually. You're yep. not going to just jump right into it. And you can start with maybe the Nike free, something along those lines, and then progressing down from there. Like this might take two, three years, but allowing your foot to just gradually adapt to that more torsional movements that it hasn't seen in quite a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what you were saying also about releasing your feet is, you know, gradually introducing the stress as part of it, allowing sufficient recovery, meaning release your feet every day is also key. And then keeping your feet strong through short foot exercise and barefoot training, like not ballistic barefoot training, but, you know, engaging the foot, connecting to the core, single leg squats, barefoot, you know, things like that help you make that transition a little bit faster and smoother. And again, that controlled stress is is very important. If you wear the Vibrams and you do it appropriately, you will actually start to increase your cortical, we're on the bone, if people don't know, the, the cortical shell of the bone is the hard, almost think like an egg that has an outer shell. You can actually increase your cortical density through stress, which means your bones become stronger through stress. So I wouldn't be surprised if people who gradually transition into minimal shoes, Vibrams or whatnot, even wearing them outside pounding the pavement, have stronger metatarsal cortical shell than those who are in supportive shell uh, in supportive shoes. I could even see that going up the chain because the 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 amount of cushioning in some shoes is I'm sure the way it's just dispersing everything like that's still why I think people have a lot of foot knee hip back problems because they are hitting the ground forces that they're uh not recognizing that are happening uh, are so immense and this is just causing so much other stressors uh, on the body. So I think this can go a long way to not just helping, we're talking about the foot here, but you have to look up the entire chain and see a lot of added benefits. Absolutely. I mean, impact exercises is one of the best way to build bone density. (laughs) So it's, you clearly need impact in your life in your skeletal system to build stronger bones and so i definitely agree with you and if you're thinking of the ages that we reach our peak bone density is that's when you should also you should still be in minimal shoes at that age until you reach your peak bone density i think for women it's roughly around like even up to 21 you reach your peak bone density and that entire period you should be introducing the stress of impact in a controlled way. So that's also why I'm, I'm a huge advocate of minimal shoes just from an early age. Once you get into the thick supportive shoes unnecessarily, now it's even more difficult to, to transition out of them. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on this peak bone density. Do, do you really believe that age or do you believe that that's just because we're starting to break down so much faster because and this is because this is my thoughts. Like I, I feel like we're breaking down so much more because not just because of the movement stressors, but 
also because of all of the environmental stressors, the, the, the foods that we're putting into our body, the lack of sleep that we're getting. And I think all of these are probably contributing to that lack of bone density much, lo- much longer, much later into life then too. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, everything is obviously multifactorial. And I think that the footwear and stress or maybe shift in activity, if we're not as active as we used to be as children and growing up, you know, that's going to alter things as well. But yeah, bone density and bone health is something that's also uh, not put at the forefront until you're a certain age. People will think of it when you're thinking like a postmenopausal female. Until it's too late almost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to be thinking of what you're doing in your, you know, teenage years to set that bone density or to build a strong musculoskeletal system because people are living longer. If we're going to live to, you know, over a hundred years, you got to, got to pace yourself on this. (laughs) (laughs) And make sure that you're, you're super strong from an early age so that you, you know, because if you're thinking like realistically, if you go through menopause at, let's say, 50, but you're living to 100 or over, which is that's completely normal now, especially for women, is that's a long time postmenopausal to need strong bones <laughs> to, and, and collagen and all of that, that people don't realize that our hormones also affect our collagen health and our fascial health. So, um, yeah, movement, longevity, and anti-aging medicine or the art of anti-aging from a movement science perspective, I think is fascinating. And that's not really focused on in anti-aging medicine. People think more, you know, obviously cosmetic, superficial, make your face look young, you know, (laughs) cancer prevention and things like that. But uh, musculoskeletal or movement longevity within that category is there's so much cool science and opportunity within that. And that's, that's my interest area as well. Well, it's funny. I just started like, cause I have a couple questions written down here. And one of the ones I wanted to just to ask you now is what is your current current area of study? Like something that you're just geeking out on. Is that kind of where you're diving right now with things or is it maybe elsewhere or something else cool to check out? Um, yeah, no. So regenerative anti-aging medicine is, is my uh, passion, one of my passions right now. Um, I just started a fellowship with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and they have an anti-aging regenerative medicine fellowship. And I just started that because I want to build my podiatry sports medicine practice to be more of a movement longevity practice and understanding um, under that would be like stem cells. And I've spoken a little bit on Facebook and social media about stem cells. I actually do a lot of stem cell injections in my office. And when we think of connective tissue health and movement longevity and things like that, the role of stem cells is the coolest thing for those who are not familiar with stem cells and kind of the potential of it is some people might go to, to stem cells and think that we're going to make, you know, test tube babies, which is what people freaked out. <laughs> and they're like, they saw, you know, a picture of a, a rat with an ear on its back and they freak out like this is dangerous. You know, we're going to, you know, create aliens or something. I have no idea. But um, <laughs> the, the opportunity of stem cells in sports medicine is huge. And just kind of real quick, if people are not familiar with it, is you can get stem cells. PRP was a super soft version of a stem cell injection, which platelet-rich plasma. But the stem cells now come from the amniotic membrane of placenta. And the amniotic membrane of the placenta is very high in these naive growth factors, which if you take those naive growth factors and you inject it, let's say, into a knee that has arthritic changes, those growth factors will stimulate the chondrocytes and you can regenerate um, cartilage into your knee joint. And if you have a rotator cuff tear, you inject the stem cells, it stimulates the fibroblasts and you get collagen production and then you can repair the rotator cuff tear. So there's a lot of opportunity within sports medicine. 
I personally use it with a lot of plantar fascial tears, chronic plantar fasciitis or fasciosis, plantar plate tears, neuromas, Achilles tendinosis, ligament ankle, ankle ligament tears. I'm, I'm injecting them all the time and have a very high success rate. And I think that's an area of medicine that that that's huge. That's going to change so much that, you know, they, they put stem cells on these little contacts and you can, you put them on your eyes and it cures glaucoma and different degeneration of eyesight, which is fascinating. You get hair growth from it. You get, they're using stem cells to regenerate, you know, the nose. So vet, veterans who happen to have these war injuries and lose limbs, they can actually regenerate parts of the body from that perspective so that they can lead a more normal life. Like that's to me fascinating. Um, and that's an area of medicine that I think is hot right now. All right. I have about 17 different questions uh, going off. <laughs> that. All right. No, because recently on the show, I just had a uh, uh, chef Lance role uh, okay. who again, huge on the bone broth scene. And I'm curious, like where your thoughts are, like how does stuff like that fit in then too? Because I mean, these things are talking just such collagen rich, uh, things. How else, what do you, what do you, I guess, prescribe maybe for your patients, like for optimal healing? Like what do you, what else are you looking at? Uh, okay. They go do the stem cell, but as we talked about before, like, okay, we can do a surgery, we can do something, but we still have to uh, fix any of the underlying dysfunction? Like, what are some of the other things, I guess, that you're going to uh, promote as far as healing goes overall then? Yeah, so I, I recommend a lot of um, different supplements where the vitamin supplements, thinking kind of along the lines of bone broth and things like that, is I recommend for a connective tissue health perspective a lot of amino acids. And there's... When it comes to fascial health or connective tissue health, your goal is to block the glycation phase of mm-hmm. what's happening with, with your blood sugar, glucose, free glucose, glucose, is that even in someone who does not have diabetes or an improper um, breakdown system of glucose can still, still gets glycation. Like that's, that's how we age is through glycation. And there's a lot of vitamins, amino acids that block that glycation phase. And two vitamin or two amino acids that are key to collagen uh, health or um, protecting your collagen is L-lysine and L-carnosine. Those two supplements are the best for your fascial connective tissue health. So I will recommend those to my patients. And then from a peripheral nerve health perspective is we also want to make sure that if we happen to get, you know, I have so many patients who get these subtle entrapments of nerves because their fascia is sticky and it then it puts pressure on the peripheral nerve and then they get a little bit of tingling in their foot and things like that. You want to make sure that you're protecting your nerve health as well. One of the best vitamins for that is L-methylfolate, which is essentially folic acid, but it's a methylated, activated form of folic acid that a lot of people don't realize that not everybody has the enzyme to activate different vitamins and supplements. So you might be taking you know, folic acid. A lot of people associate folic acid with prenatal. If you're trying to get pregnant, you want, you know, healthy fetus nervous system developments. You take a lot of folic acid. You might not have the enzyme to activate or to methylate that folate, which means you essentially just pee it out. Um, So if you take activated methylated folic acid, that is, that has been shown to increase nerve growth factor, which means that now you're starting to um, repair any nerve damage that you might have. My diabetic patients or um, chemo patients who happen to have, or idiopathic who happen to have different peripheral neuropathies, I put all of those patients on L-methylfolate, acetyl-L-carnitine, which increases nerve growth factor, and R-lipoic acid, which is a very strong antioxidant. So there's definitely supplemental 
um, uh, areas or supplements that you can take to help your body repair and maintain a youthful connective tissue peripheral nervous system because that's that's really part of your movement longevity as well yeah and i i I agree with a lot of those there for sure and i just want to add one more in there hey guys drink your water too because if the fascia is not hydrated yeah it's never gonna work any of these things too uh no but i think that's and especially talking like to a lot of my diabetic patients as well uh i will i really try and address that because the liquid that they take in might be the coffee they take their pills with in the morning and that's about it and that's going to lead to just a whole mess of other problems uh going down the road like they still might be taking a lot of different supplements and stuff but if they're not hydrating properly like uh, the the plantar fascia i tell people like this is still a hard area to heal if you're not giving it the proper environment so there's still a lot of other things that go into that Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the diabetic population, just because of their high levels of glucose, are extremely susceptible to this glycation and to the, the flexibility in a diabetic because of their fascial dehydration and glycation and stickiness is um, of a higher concern. So there's actually higher uh, tendon rupture rates in a diabetic than in a non-diabetic. So... You know, that's that's a whole nother area of people that they could build fitness or health programs specific for diabetics, understanding little things kind of like what you're saying is, you know, fascial hydration and fascial health should be a key component of a diabetic fitness program. So, Dr. Emily, we've we've covered a a whole lot today and I want to bring start coming to a close here with a couple more questions. A couple of the ones that I always ask people when they come on the show is one of the first ones is who would you want to hear on this podcast? And what is something that you would either want to ask them or just hear them talk about? Um, I truly enjoy Dr. Perry Nicholson. I don't know if you've had him on the show yet. No. Okay. So he's the founder of stop chasing pain. Okay. And a uh, chiropractor by trade does a lot of, um, he had started with NKT, FMS. Um, he does some laser therapy, very, very holistic and kind of outside of the box thinker when it comes to movement, movement dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And um, really anything he talks about is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, and that's, I, I love having that. So no, that could be a lot of fun. Well, I'm actually curious then too. Uh, who talking about the stem cells, like, is there anybody in particular that you follow or a couple of like researchers or anything, or just people that are practicing it, uh, a lot that might be uh, good to connect with on that topic. So I would, if you want more along the lines of people who are truly like in the trenches of stem cell, mm-hmm. I would look at, um, the website is a4m.org and, they are really leading the pathway in stem cell research. The, I, I'm, I take it more from that perspective. So I follow all of those doctors who are doing the actual research. Um, that's under lifeextension.com as well. Those organizations I've been following for, I don't know, probably 10 years. And, um, you know, they would have the science and more that, that technical side of it. I would check out them. Um, and their application would be for not just, you know, my experience with stem cells is obviously podiatric. So mm-hmm. I'm using it primarily for that. But being able to track it for other injuries such as knee osteoarthritis or rotator cuff tears and, and things like that, I would I would check out that website as they will have a lot of resources on stem cells. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check some of those out because it's one of those, I've, I've had uh, several patients with injections and I think everybody who has gone down that route has actually had a lot of success. So, uh, but I, I think it still is one of those things where it's it's still so new, like till it really gets uh, to just have the popularity and I don't know even that all insurances cover it, which is always going to be a big thing then too. Uh, but I'm going to have to check out a little bit more into this. 
Yeah, no, actually, um, no insurances cover it. Okay. You can you can get it covered if you're doing it in the operating room, which means it's part of a procedure. So then it's billed a little bit differently. Right. Uh, you know, we do it in our office. We charge seven fifty per mm-hmm. injection. So so that's for twenty milligrams. Um, in the foot, most foot pathology, you can get away with twenty milligrams. I'll do two injections, and the patient always has to be immobilized. So they're going in a cam walker for four weeks. I do it two injections. So two weeks later, I'll do another 20 milligram injection. So it's $1,500 total that they're investing in the foot and in mm-hmm. this process. Peak success with the stem cells is around eight weeks status post injection. And um, other parts of the body, you may need you know one or two more 40 to 50 milligram injections just because obviously the the joint or the the anatomy is a little bit bigger so the rates would be a little bit more but just so people know you know that that's kind of the going rate for it if anyone has been charged or quoted like five thousand dollars or something (laughs) like that which people have i'm sure there's there's another type of stem cell which is bone marrow which means that you have to go in and you're tapping the iliac crest or the calcaneus and you're actually drawing out the bone marrow and then you're getting the stem cells from that that's different than the auto sort of the allograft stem cells which are from the amniotic membrane that i was speaking about Mm -hmm. those injections the key one that that we inject is called amniofix that's the the main stem cell injection that one is dehydrated stem cells there's also cryopreserved stem cells. Those ones are more expensive. So when someone's kind of educating themselves and shopping around for stem cells, um, knowing that some are dehydrated, some are cryopreserved, some are auto, which means it comes from you, that would be your bone marrow. Um, I would definitely do one of those hands down over PRP. I would not do PRP anymore. It's kind of out of fad in a sense. And if there's options that have a higher uh, higher concentration of stem cells per cc, that's definitely going to be more this amniofix versus PRP. Excellent. And that, I think that's very helpful for people to at least get uh, their base knowledge and just start uh, diving in from there. So thank you. Uh, really, in closing, where can the listeners uh, find more about you? Where can uh, we go to help you out? Just anything that you're working on uh, and check it all out. Yeah, absolutely. So my education company is EBFA Fitness, ebfafitness.com. We do a Barefoot Strong Summit uh, every year, our third annual one coming up in 2017. That's barefootstrongsummit.com. The small nerve proprioceptive mat and flooring system that I spoke about briefly in the beginning is called Naboso Technology. Um, Naboso meaning barefoot in checks. You can check out that. All of those are actually linked from ebfaglobal.com. That lists all of my companies. And then my blog is barefootstrongblog.com. Perfect. And I'll have to make sure get all of those in the show notes because I'm, I'm very excited to see like some of the, the, the mat technology there because that that's something that I, I kind of like geeking out on then too. So, uh, Oh yeah. It's evidence based, awesome. which is key. So built entirely off of research. So, you know, I can stand behind it knowing that it's going to positively impact someone's, uh, rehab fitness performance program from a science-based perspective. Right. Right. And that's, that's always key. So, Hey, everybody make sure go check out all this stuff. Uh, listen back, I think on some of the stuff that we talked about that there before, uh, really dive into it and see how you can help yourself out with this. Uh, and Dr. Emily, thank you again so much for coming on so much just for sharing all of this for everybody. Uh, so make sure everybody go out, check out, support this. I'll, I'll, put some links to the YouTube as well, where we talked about the pubalgia, because I think that's something a lot of practitioners need to uh, dive into a little bit more as well. Yeah, no, it was, it was awesome. Thank you so much for the invite. And I hope that people enjoyed some of the topics that we chatted about.
Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm -hmm.